This is The Lag with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Helen, kick us off. Well, I've been thinking about um, guilt a lot this week, so maybe I will, I have a new sort of set of ideas to do with guilt, and they sort of relate to Brazil, so maybe I'll get onto it towards the end. Um, but yeah, I, I mostly wanted to talk about, and this does relate to guilt, the question of ideology as it relates to the system you know, the, the capitalist market system. Um, and that we are often mid- misled by our understanding of what the system is. And our ideological understanding of the system is very outdated. <laughs> so, um, you know, we hear this question of, of patriarchy or the superego is patriarchy. I think I've talked about this before, this sort of error in understanding. You sort of get this left liberal critique of capitalism as you know, restrained, highly restrained, highly moral, well, highly moralistic, yes, but moralistic, not tied to restraint, but to excess, I would argue. And so maybe I'll, I'll talk about guilt now, actually. <laughs> but, um, in 707 Ethics of Psychoanalysis, um, I think I've talked about this a gazillion times, but Lacan talks about this idea of giving way in terms of your desire, don't give way in terms of your desire, which can have this binary interpretation of, first of all, um, don't yield entirely, don't give way as in yield, give yourself over to entirely, believing that um, your desire is going to completely fulfill you in a transcendentally way and it'll make you um, magically happier. And that's a sort of a lie, ideological lie that capitalism hijacks. But also, on the other hand, I mean, this is the ambivalence of desire that we have to deal with. Don't give give way to it, don't let it pass you by, don't, don't not engage in your desire. Capitalism tells us the, the superegoic command is not, you know, be restrained, be, um, be you know, hardworking per se. It is a command to enjoy, a command to, uh, it's a FOMO, a command to, to buy, to, you know, if you watch, it's funny, I was watching daytime TV recently and the ideological kind of like spell that gets cast on you in viewing it having not watched it for years, is sort of like, oh, isn't it great? Or just enjoy yourself. Go on. Oh, you, you know, have a cup of tea. Like the, like <laughs> cap- the capitalist ideological command is very much to buy, to party, to, to have sex, to, you know, to enjoy. But this does not mean that you are giving, you are um, adhering your own desire. This is a call to forego your own desire, which might be, for instance, not to party, not to have sex, not to overeat, for instance, to go for a walk, to spend time with your family, to have children, all these kinds of things. The ideological command is to replace your desire with another's. So we just want, I think this sort of ties into this idea of Brazil, what's being painted in Brazil. And the reason why this ties to guilt is that guilt really, and I think Lacan kind of, um, explains this in this section, it's not that you feel bad for having done something. It's precisely the opposite. It's you feel bad for not having done something, for, giving, for having given way in terms of your desire. So for instance, we can think of, um, uh, this is not my example, but Peter's used this example on his podcast, The Fundamentalist, that when somebody is stopped by the police for, having spe- for speeding, when they haven't Sped. <laughs> That's not the way you say it. Does regard. It's not that, and you feel guilty. The guilt is not like shit. You know, I uh, I haven't done something wrong, but I've been caught. It's really a guilt that is you wish you had done it and you hadn't. 
I mean, I can think of multiple examples of my life, but maybe they'll be too personal. But another example might be, you know, if somebody overeats, eats excessively and they feel guilty. The guilt is not there to say, oh, you shouldn't have done this. The guilt is rather you didn't want to eat. You actually didn't want to eat. And yet you did it. You gave way in terms of your desire. So the point being is that the the um, system, the capitalist system, the bureaucracy de- depicted in Brazil is not one of restraint, of uh, reasonableness, of reining things in, but one of, um, of utility. It's the reverse of utility. It's just this extreme too muchness. And we have um, the character played by Robert De Niro who fixes um, the ducts in the building, whatever is a challenge to the system precisely because he is utilitarian and fixes things. So capitalism, and you, maybe you're going to talk about this, Nina, in terms of your father with his, his, his dentist's practice. The, the thing that generates profit is not something that is reasonable and, fulfill, and fixes a problem, but that's something that sustains the problem so that it almost always must be fixed. But again, you know, ideology is, is really tricky and we can lose our way um, eternally. And, you know, we're, we're losing, we're, we're taking um, at face value often what we are told. And this is why psychoanalysis is so important. We don't listen to words. We listen to words. You know, we don't listen to the intent of the word. We listen to what the Freudian slips, what's actually being done, what's actually being said at a verbal word-like level. So there's the phrase, we're all in this together, that the system use, uses. And I think it's interesting you know, when people talk about um, the National Socialist Party or, you know, the People's Republic of China or whatever. And I always think of the example of the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's like if a company is really calling themselves something like democratic, you can absolutely um, probably guarantee that it's the reverse. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so it really is a question of too much rather than too little often. Um, and, you know, this is how things like hedge funds make money, this, um, this overvaluation and undervaluation constantly, this vacillation, this unreasonable vacillation is how um, a certain financialization can function. So money can be creamed off the excess, you know, this, this, this um, misrecognition of the actual worth of something. But yeah, so, so the, the system must be maintained, the toxicity must be maintained, it must not be um, reasonably um, sated an issue, the issue must continue. And so we must perpetually pretend to deal with a problem, but not actually resolve it. Um, I, was, I wrote here, fantasy as the opposite of to capitalism, if only it is directed to the public good. I have no idea what I was meaning there. But the last thing I wanted to talk about was the innovation of the food, for instance, you know, when they're in the restaurant where they had the, um, the terrorist attack and they're given the, the food. And I think this is really tied to a certain food ideology that we have today. You know, <sighs> What, we, what is given, sold to us as innovation is precisely not innovation. And if you break down, if you, if you take away the ideological supplement to the innovation, and we see this very much in food and how it's tied to climate change, it, it seems absolutely patently ridiculous. So you have things like I was at a, um, doing some Christmas shopping the other day, and there was a sign in the shop for something called Huel, which is a food that is basically like a series of vitamins and things and sort of like a protein drink that you can drink and you get your whole meal in this sort of glob. And there was a, um, another product, I don't know the name of the company, but the, the blurb on the front of it was, um, this is food or something, you know, this, as if, this really is food, I promise you, you know, it's like the lady doth protest too much or sissy ne pas, you know, in the Magritte sense. But it's this innovation 
that precisely is a destructive. So we have this this promise that it's somehow healthier, but actually, you know, the healthiest thing is really um, a reasonable um, acquiring of food in its most natural state. But we we add all of these innovations and all of these extra sort of um, ways for the various companies to have hands in the production of something to create something that is completely distorted from the thing it was originally. You have, you know, a, a vegan version of milk that has is devoid of all the things that make milk milk, and suddenly you're sold. It's sold back to you as innovation, as healthier, what have you, as, as plant based. But really, you know, this is sort of the, the greenwashing of capitalism. This is just a way to um, pointless, pointlessly create more and more and more and more products with the ideological supplement. That this is um, protecting the planet. This is more ethical. But it's just a way to um, constantly uh, sell a new promise. Uh, break down a new border for something that really is uh, a pointless innovation. The question is more um, at a, a systems and an economic question in terms of how food is produced in the first place. Um, so, yeah, I just I guess the, the question that I find very interesting here, and I, there's a very, very good um, video essay by uh, Tom McGowan on this film on YouTube, and I recommend everybody watches it. But it's really uh, the idea of taking the system at its word, taking capitalism at its word. Um, capitalism is not a free market. It is precisely unfree. We live in capitalist unfreedom. We do not have choice. We are commanded by this essentially very wasteful, very pointless system that directs us to not fulfill things, to not create things that are reasonable and honest and actually fix problems, but to sustain the problem so that profit can always be generated. And that's all for me. All right, Nina, you're up. Yeah, uh, it's, it's very interesting to watch this film from 1985 um, and to think about the similarities and differences and continuities and tendencies within various forms of bureaucracy that we currently um, confront um, and how close or far away this, this film uh, is in some ways. And I think it, it's sort of both. Um, but I just wanted to start with a, a kind of Baudrillardian experience I had that relates to what Helen was saying in relation to the, the, the fake food scene, the, the idea that you're eating the image of the real food and, and you know, the, the kind of endless forms of mediation and distancing um, that we encounter. And I think maybe I was uh, a, a maybe 12 or 13 and, and I was in... Uh, I was in Canada for some reason. Probably it was. It might have been the trip where we tried to find my grandfather's grave because my father never met his father, and he was some Irish alcoholic, of course, who who went to Newfoundland as, as many of them did. And uh, we were trying to. We went on a holiday to search for a grave for two weeks, which is very appealing to my goth goth self. And uh, we were we were you know there's lots of strange. Uh, food in, in uh, Newfoundland, like people eat puffin and, and, and seal and, and these sorts of things. And, but I remember going to like, maybe it was a, a museum shop and there was a, a toy seal, but it was made of real seal fur. And I remember just being like profoundly disturbed by the, you know, the, <laughs> the processes of thought and reality that would create such a world in which uh, a toy seal designed to appeal to children primarily was, was, you know, involve the death of a real seal in order to create the the toy seal, and uh, I think this 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 moment of the you know we could say very the simulacrum 
that that has a sort of very disturbing relation to the real. Um, there's a lot of that going on in this film, and I, I, it's interesting that it's a very um, visceral dystopia. It's 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 partly about plastic surgery. It's it, there's the the pipes and the kind of the the embodiment. It's a kind of a, a sort of intestinal dystopia. Uh, everything is kind of spilling out and and overflowing, and it's it's there's a lot of. Uh, Kind of liquids and and sort of disgusting uh, things uh, that are sort of uh, falling out of the sides. You know, it's almost like people's stomach. It's it people's stomachs are kind of opening up. Uh, there's a kind of noir element, um, and I think I think the message in a way is 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 that bureaucracy literally kills. You know, that these kind of uh, uh, arrangements, these are sort of authoritarian states. Uh, the bureaucracy is not incidental to their functioning, but absolutely central to it. Um, and the bureaucracy, in a, in a sense, where, when it goes right or when it goes wrong, ends up targeting people and, and indeed killing them. And anyone who notices how the machine works um, will be next in line. Um, part of the setup of this, uh, this, this system that Gilliam depicts is uh, also to do with credit and insurance. Um, he's looking at the kind of financialization, I think, of the human uh, which is obviously kicking off a great deal in the 1980s. It's not yet the kind of full biopolitical social credit uh, model that we're now looking at, I think. And I, I think the at, at this point in the 80s, the the you know the viscera is in the world, right? The the state is kind of not yet in your uh, in your body. Although there are, there are, in the final scenes, there are there is torture, uh, there is the um, image of terrorism, the spectre of terrorism, um, which obviously we lived under that regime for a long time, which I now think has ceded to something like health terrorism, so that people, it, you know, everybody's a potential vector of infection. Everyone is a kind of viral terrorist, if you like. So the terrorist threat has is no longer. It, quite that, although all of these things are assimilated, right? They never go away either, right? So we end up with a system in which of bureaucracy in which all of the previous bureaucracies are folded into the current one as well. So, you know, air, airplane travel, having just managed to fly to Boston, uh, barely making it um, on the basis of not uh, being able to follow the rules or getting rules wrong uh, and, and being uh, told off repeatedly and threatened and, and having had my flight rerouted and, and you know, um, it, you know, insane levels of bureaucracy. And, and now the kind of combination of that sort of spectre of terrorism has kind of uh, been supplemented with the kind of biopolitical terrorism of the having the wrong test, you know, uh, coming from the wrong country. Uh, you know, everyone is a, is a potential uh, weapon in that sense. Um, so we're, I think with this one, we're looking at a period just before we've ceded to this uh, this new uh, period, and I think one of the interesting things um, for me and 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 Benjamin set the idea of um, uh, Kyotism or Quixotism or however we say it, like the the idea of the um, I guess the idealism and the wanting to save people, and you know the main character is this kind of dweeby bureaucrat who is in love with this kind of like almost like radical feminist type woman who's a tough, uh, you know, and he keeps fantasizing that she should have long hair instead of the short haircut that she has, and she's quite sort of butch, and she's she's quite a good character I think actually, and uh, um, so but nevertheless in his fantasies and his dreams in his kind of sexualized. Uh, sort of day, daydreams that the things that take him away from bureaucracy everything is kind of mythical and angelic and of course it reminded me of Agamben and what Agamben says about angels and in this film the, there is uh, at least in this in the main character's fantasy an opposition between the kind of grim masculinist uh, bureaucracy and this kind of uh, 
sort of effervescent, ethereal, angelic, uh, spiritual, heightened, feminine world. But I think the the, the terrible truth, as Agamben points out, is that uh, angelology is itself a bureaucracy, that angels are also bureaucrats and office workers. So the opposition that's set up in this film is uh, untenable. And I'm just going to read a quote from, uh, from Agamben because he's so, so good. And um, let me find. Okay, so Agamben says, Celestial messengers are organized into offices and ministries just as worldly functionaries assume angelic qualities in their turn and in the same way as angels become capable of curing, enlightening and perfecting. Moreover, because of an ambiguity that characterizes the history of the relation between spiritual and secular power, the paradigmatic relation between angelology and bureaucracy runs in both directions. Um, so I think we have to, in a way, I mean, you could you could get this in the film too, but I, I think whether it's a dialectical image of the, the angels and the bureaucrats, um, we need to think uh, them both together, at least from an Agambenian perspective, which I think is correct. So the, the hierarchies, the celestial hierarchies are basically um, a way of also thinking about um, secular hierarchies and bureaucracies. And And then the kind of maybe the further synthetic point that I would end on would be, can we see the angel in the everyday? Like, is is there a way not of having the angel or angelology as some separate science, um, but rather thinking through angels through the bureaucracy that exists today, um, almost in that kind of Heideggerian, only a God can save us now kind of way. But is there any uh, uh, residual um, magic or escape <laughs> in the in the hell of uh, contemporary bureaucracies of all kinds. So would there be like an angelic image of um, health or life that would oppose the kind of health terrorism that we are currently um, undergoing? Interesting stuff. All right, it's my turn. I picked the theme of Quixotism for Brazil because the main character, played by Jonathan Price spends the whole film escaping from reality through an increasingly unhinged fantasy in which he is some kind of noble warrior. In his fantasies, he has big muscles, and he flies. In real life, he is a petty bureaucrat who works for a totalitarian state. Initially, he is content to go to work and have these fantasies at home, in his off time, when he's free to sleep and daydream. Offered a promotion, he declines it. He is the first to ever do so. In this society, no one turns down promotions. But then he finds a woman who reminds him of the woman he saves in his fantasies. He is determined to find her, but he can only get access to information about her if he accepts the promotion. So he leaves his quiet life behind, taking a horrible, high-stress job to get a girl. He would not be the first man to do such a thing. He discovers that she's in trouble, and he tries to help, but he mostly just makes the situation worse. As his fantasies become stronger, he commits stupid crimes to rescue her. These crimes are attributed to the girl and only make the situation worse for her. By the end of the film, she's dead, and he's in a state torture chamber completely out of his mind. Like Don Quixote, Price's character has values that fundamentally conflict with those of the society in which he lives. His bourgeois mother pulls strings to help him up the greasy pole, but all he wants to do is play at being a hero. In totalitarian, impersonal societies, there is no room for heroes of that kind. Everyone is chained down by impersonal rules. 
One of Price's work friends is a torturer. At one point in the film, the torturer discovers he's tortured an innocent man to death. The torturer doesn't get upset. It is the system that gives him people to torture, and if the system gives him the wrong person, that's not on him. Max Weber hated this about bureaucrats. They have no stake in their decisions because their decisions are always based on rules. But as Weber also realized, modern states and corporations struggle to do without rules. Older systems of patronage invite too much corruption and arbitrariness for modern tastes. We would rather have a system that reliably fails. If the system depends on the qualities of particular people, its performance will fluctuate. It won't be predictable. We'd rather know for sure that the system will fail us than contend with uncertainty. Our societies are too big. We don't know most of the people who perform work for us. We don't trust them to make their own decisions freed from rules. Rules ensure that jobs are done the same way every time, even if it means the job is never done as well as it could be. At one point in the film, Price's air conditioning system breaks down. The state bureaucrats are slow to show up, but a rogue repairman, played by Robert De Niro, intercepts Price's call. He comes to the rescue, fixing the system in an unconventional but highly effective way. It is illegal repair work. The state regards De Niro's character as a terrorist. In an impersonal, rules-based system, you can never have a repairman as good as De Niro. But you also know what you're getting. The system's repairman will follow the required procedure. If they deviate, you can file a complaint. That opportunity to file a complaint is so precious to us that we are tempted to create a world in which there is no art to repair work. We put all the repairmen in the service of some company, and whenever we don't like the job they do, we speak to their managers. In such a world, there are no repairmen who are treated with the kind of reverence Price shows De Niro. Every repairman follows the same script because deviating from the script gets you in trouble. To let the repairman off the script, to allow him to be an artist, we must risk the possibility that he might be a quack. We must allow for the possibility that he might make a mess of it and that no one will answer for his mess. Even De Niro can cause more problems than he solves. Because De Niro fixes air conditioning systems illegally, he's always worried about being caught. When he comes to Price's house, he draws a gun and forces Price to allow him to fix the system. When the state repairmen show up, he threatens to shoot Price if Price doesn't fob them off. The state repairmen vow to take revenge on Price for failing to allow them to complete their job, and they do just that, sabotaging his system so that it freezes the shit out of everything. De Niro is a phenomenal repairman, but in a totalitarian society, he is yet another Quixote, a misplaced knight errant. He is another poor person trying to live anachronistic values that are completely out of step with where things are. The director, Terry Gilliam, went on to spend the better part of 40 years making a film about Don Quixote. That film was repeatedly stymied by misfortunes of many kinds. But Gilliam went on trying to make the film anyway. It eventually came out with a much older Jonathan Price once again in a prominent role. It's not a bad film, but it got mixed reviews. It certainly didn't win anything. I am glad I've seen it, but was it worth 40 years of a man's life? What is a person to do when their values are so utterly estranged from the society they live in that to remain true to those values is to appear to descend into madness? Do you make some kind of compromise with society in the hopes of changing it, in the hopes of reconciling yourself to it? Or do you press on, in the face of other people's mockery, living a life that makes little sense to most of the people around you? In Brazil, both Price and De Niro are on quixotic quests, 
These quests give them a sense of meaning in a world that would be otherwise meaningless for them. But along the way, they cause a lot of trouble for the people around them, and they live lives deeply alienated from social structures. Is it worthwhile to persist in holding on to values that make no sense to other people? How much can we permissibly inconvenience other people for our beliefs? I want to know what Helen and Nina think about these things. Well, it's like yeah. timely, isn't it? Oh, I'm on mute. I am unmuted. <laughs> I, I have lots of thoughts about this. Maybe, maybe I've, oh, if I'll just go go first. But um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I'm I'm currently like the resident theorist at an experimental music festival, and for many of the people participating, they are extraordinarily committed to their practice, right, as experimental musicians and composers. And a lot of them are people who've actually given up on other aspects of their life in order to pursue their passion. Or sometimes they have to work jobs that they don't care about. But the thing they care about is experimental music, which it it, it has, uh, you know, it, very, very small uh, audiences, uh, almost no purchase in a kind of popular uh, way. Um, it's, it's kind of... Uh, relating to sound and composition in ways that are deeply, deeply at odds with anything that could be, that would be recognized. Um, they're, you know, extremely small scenes. Um, and yet, you know, we were talking about this yesterday. This is the thing that people live for, right? This is, this is what they, they enjoy. And that there's a small community of people who, who know each other and, you know, with all of the same issues that happen in any kind of scene, like, I don't know, disagreements and fallings out and, and, and so on over the years. Um, and, and, and yeah, there's something kind of, uh, extremely, uh, beautiful about, <laughs> about this. And we were all talking about what, to what extent we would be prepared to do things that we wouldn't, um, want to do. And it, and it, and it strikes me thinking about the kind of, uh, you know, some aspects of contemporary culture that the many of the people who engage in, uh, the 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 condemnation of others, the denunciation of others, the attempt to get other people fired from whatever minimal work they have, are often actually in positions either of independent wealth, um, so they don't need to worry about losing their job. Um, they can literally, you know, issue commands and and to to destroy people's lives, um, or they do jobs for which, according to the rest of their own politics, they can't help but feel incredibly guilty about. To go back to Helen's point, so for example, one of the people who goes after me works for, oh, let's say the wife of a, a war criminal, you know, literally works for a foundation, somebody who is extremely tainted by mass murder and um, violence. And um, yet this person, you know, at least performatively regards themselves as on the a good person, on the right side of history, you know, d doing uh, the right thing and trying to cancel multiple people because they have the wrong views. And you you can't help but understand this as some kind of, um, you know, psychoanalytically, as some kind of desperate attempt to rid themselves of the guilt and the, the bad feeling that they must have due to their day job. Um on to, and, and 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 sort of misplace it, displace it. Sorry, onto onto others, you know, and say no, 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 they're the bad ones. <laughs> For sure. Um, yeah, and I, I think so. So, what does it mean? And this is a very Gen X kind of question, I suppose. Like not to not to sell out, you know. And I think that question has been mutated over the years. I, I think the platform, you know, multiple platform reality we live in doesn't have doesn't pose quite the same question because I think when we were growing up, it was still there's the mainstream and then there's 
something else, you know, whether it was subcultures or, you know, uh, opposition to the mainstream. And, and you know, as, as I kind of ruefully or wryly commented before we went on, I think for a lot of people in my generation, if if they were outsiders who gained success, this was basically unbearable. So a lot of those people who did become successful one way or another often developed drug problems or committed suicide because in a way to be recognised was was the worst thing somehow, or it was untenable or unbearable. And I think we can see that pattern uh, in many uh, kind of Gen X um, figures somehow. I mean, this is what, you know, this this society depicted as highly alienating and alienation is alienation from your desire. We live in a free market world. We're obviously completely unfree, but the, the freedom question, and often, you know, societies where there are more roles, designated roles. So so going off your desire does not mean you're going to get it, you know, and actually coming to, it, it, there's no cure in getting it. The cure is in literally verbalizing what you want, coming to understand what you want. And it can take a very, very long time. Most people don't know. And, you know, this is, again, it's all about psychoanalysis. You, your desire becomes um, delineated in your enunciations with the other not in your intentions, but it, it emerges over the course of time. And you'll find it's very rare, you know, some people do want recognition. Many people don't, you know, and it's not even whether you do or you don't, there's no value there. You know, some people want recognition and get it. Some people get rec- recognition precisely because they don't want it, because they mm-hmm. want something else, but they haven't acknowledged their desire. Or there are, you know, infinite factors. Obviously, material reality is a real thing. But the guilt in terms of, let's say, somebody who goes around cancelling, the guilt is not that they have, uh, they're doing something unethical per se. Mm. It's that they have given up on their desire. Perhaps their desire is to be ethical. They get, you know, perhaps their desire is to be an artist. Perhaps their desire is to be a political activist. That, that is, that is and, and so that's about as good as it gets. You know, it's just literally the acknowledgement of the desire. So, so fantasy, in a sense, you know, Things get elevated. Things, desire becomes sort of a toxic drive to the point when, you know, death drive to the point where you think it's going to, try, you you don't understand oh, this, this ambivalence isn't acknowledged where it's not like the fulfillment of the desire will cure everything, will, 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 will cure the world. And that's how capitalism operates. And capitalism says you can have what you want and you will get it. But really this, this sort of psychoanalytic insight is you can... Believe you might get it, but you probably won't. And so the, the logic of capitalism just hijacks the promise, and which is really frustrating in terms of things like I can see how, uh, how elements of psychoanalysis have sort of been merged into, you know, and all these things like the, the, the eco-capitalism uh, and the green capitalism and the ethical capitalism, because it just it turns this into an absolute promise rather than a less literal acknowledgement. Um, and it's very, very difficult. And um, I think I have been thinking why. I think I was literally thinking a similar thing about cancel culture. Why is there so much guilt at the moment mm. of, you know, um, maybe a, a certain millennial class of people because the material conditions as they enter into, you know, more senior management positions, for instance. There's so much guilt. And the guilt isn't, you know, we have so much and we shouldn't. The guilt is we have given up on our desire. And the desire could be a desire to not have very much, to live like, you know, a, a very boring life. To, to, you know, but we, we are so hijacked by the command of the market, by the ideological call to enjoy, to have, 
and, and, and the reason why I say the word enjoy, you know, obviously there are, you know, I'm dialectic, you know, I think dialectically. So there, there are these in, in the call to, to, to quote unquote freedom and enjoyment, the ideological call, there is restraint. But the aesthetic restraint of sort of this, that the, the kind of like activist capitalism says, you know, patriarchy, this, that and the other, it, it, it does the restraint at the level of the aesthetic. But it, or the critique of the restraint of the, at the level of the aesthetic, but it's all, you know, things like anything like, you know, the self-care, self-care capitalism. That's all about, you know, it, it's setting up this op- past opposition to promise something else, but it's all about having and completion and getting. And desire isn't about that. Mm. And also the other thing, the other thing that psychoanalysis does is it gets you to literally recognize that other people exist. And we, we've said so many times, we live in a really solipsistic world. Part mm. of the recognition occurs when you realize that your analyst is not an all-knowing person. Because this is what happens with bureaucracies where we think that the system is a system, we have to obey the system. It's made up of random people who are also human beings and therefore divided. Your analyst is also a human being and therefore divided. He's not an all-knowing person. And it's in that confrontation with that division that you come to recognize yourself and the other. So desire is limited by the existence of the other. That's the reality principle. You cannot get what, what you want because other people actually exist. But when we have these sort of bureaucratic systems that promise you can have everything, you know, with the proviso that certain things are organized, it literally is, it's very unhuman because it's not actually recognizing the actual existence of people. And I sometimes think about this in terms of politics, that we've gone, we have this, when people say, oh, this artist is too political, what I say is it's precisely apolitical, and that's why it's annoying. It's apolitical because it's like, this is the absolute, this is the way to think, this is, you know, morally okay, and that isn't. Politics is the, is, is the collision of people who have different points of view, of the, the multiplicitous desire of other people. It's not like, yeah. save the children, save this, I'm best Listen to me. It's pre- that's precisely not politics. That's preventing politics from happening. That's yeah. turning contradiction of politics into opposition. So my point being is desire is political insofar as desire is extremely human. And desire will inevitably encounter you with the desire of the other, which is what limits your desire. But the limitation of desire is a positive thing because if you had it, if you had everything you desired you would realize like Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory that it's not really worth it. I don't know if this is, um, I'm just riffing off what Peter always talks about. So apologies if it sounds like gobbledygook because sometimes I just like our conversations and his podcast and all this kind of stuff. But the point being is like, you know, if you had everything, you acknowledge, you come to realize that the fantasy that your desire is completely impotent. So what you want is the perpetual going after your desire with the convenient, thankful existence of other people who prevent you from getting fulfilling the desire so that the, so that the desire continues and it's you have to be brave you know it's cowardly we are punished for our cowardice and it's very human to be cowardless cowardly with a sense of guilt so in brazil i see a, a certain trap emerging which is if you have this really dystopian society which encourages people to pursue desires in a ridiculous way. Insofar as you go along with that society, then you end up pursuing desires in a ridiculous way. But the society is so dystopian and so intensely based around getting you to have desires 
that you can only resist that society by retreating into some kind of fantasy. And that fantasy involves a separate set of desires that are very much at odds with the society. And they protect you from being absorbed into the society's system of desire, but only at the cost of giving you a different set of, in many ways, equally ridiculous desires. And the more ridiculous the society, the more ridiculous the desires in the resistor have to be for the resistor to remain outside. And so I guess my, my question is, if you're in a dystopia, a dystopia that's really every bit as bad as, as Brazil, what should a person do who lives in that society? Well, this is, this is the thing that's difficult because the ideology is so intense, but it's literally about being honest with your desires. But how, do you, how are you honest when you're inhabited by ideology? You know, the terrorism question is really, really interesting because terrorism's, terrorism obviously is so bigged up. Or we, as Nina said, we went through this period of terrorism that was so convenient to the system because it sustains desire. The idea that everything could be magically taken away at any time this sustains uh, clinging to the toxic system. And the terrorist is also a capitalist. The terrorist um, sees the sort of uncastrated other as having everything that they want. It's, it's all to do with a sort of um, a, a buying into the lie of ideology of the West, which is, you know, you can have everything. And it's the sort of uncastrated other that is very, very... Um, repulsive in a way. But the thing is, nobody is uncastrated. This is just a lie. And the, the, the belief that that exists is this sort of ideology of promise kind of thing. And you have to sort of annihilate the person who's enjoying so that you can sustain your own enjoyment. Um, but I, I think it is to do with, um, this is why freedom of speech is so important. Freedom of thoughts. And I, I don't know, like, what do, you, what do you do in terms of you know, when the system is so repressive? Because to acknowledge your desire is to, um, and so when, you know, when Fori talks about repression, we're talking about a repression of the unconscious. We're not talking about sexual repression. Desire isn't just about sex. It's, it, it, you know, it can, it can be about anything. It can be about, I want to talk to my friend for half an hour on the phone. I want to be an actress. I want to be a pirate. I want to be a teacher. You know, it can be anything. And the, the denial, this is so purity so that there's always a return of the repressed. And so this is why the puritanical stuff fails immensely and creates even more of the thing it's trying to repress. So, yeah. I mean, but I, I don't know what an individual does in, if a system like that is so repressive. And I think it is, it's a problem, but I think it, re it requires a lot of honesty. Yeah. But how can you be I, honest in a profoundly dishonest system? Yeah. I think one way of understanding some of the, the, the woke stuff is as a kind of um, ascetic reaction formation to the imperative to enjoy, right? So it, in a way, we, you can see it sympathetically, you know, and I think yeah, most people yeah. who are kind of, who are suffering anxiety and guilt and worried about what to say and about the wrong words, saying the wrong words and being, you know, all of that pathology um, can also be understood as a kind of, yeah, a, precisely an ascetic, att an attempt um, symptomatically to um, 
um, minimize one's participation in a system which is otherwise instructing you to to enjoy and consume. You know, and I think it's no surprise that we've also seen the kind of uh, resurgence of Gnostic heresies along the lines of veganism, uh, the denial of a certain kind of um, embodied uh, pleasure, whether it's the impossibility of marriage or having children. And these are all Gnostic heresies, right? These are literally things that the Gnostics did that the, the church opposed because you can't uh you have to get people to eat meat and ha- marry and have children <laughs> if you're the catholic church um so so you know we ha- we have these kind of ascetic moves which which is one way or or even things to even deeper ones uh you know eating disorders uh you know ch- trying to change your body trying to escape you know the 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 visceral reality the horror of matter and the horror of your own desire um so i think there's a sympathetic way we can understand that and i i think in terms of trying to to think about how to escape these forms of alienation i do wonder you know i'm very very uh, you know into rd lang and 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 you know, he's this very famous line about, you know, sometimes a, a breakdown is a breakthrough, right? Sometimes, not always, okay? You know, sometimes the breakdown is just, that's it, you're fucked. You know, you you've you fucked your life, you know, you're dead, you're whatever, you OD'd. But I think there's, there's a kind of a different kind, perhaps, of subjective destitution, which comes about not as a kind of ascetic practice, but as a form of kind of total disillusionment. So before you can even understand what your desire might be, it's almost like you have to fully embrace how fucked up you are like there's so it's a kind of um you know it's it's not it's it's not positive it's not like oh what i really wanted was this and i shouldn't get it and but nevertheless at least i understand a bit more what it is that i'm interested in and therefore you can kind of contain your desire and work with it and you know put it to some exciting use maybe which would probably be the ideal like a recognition of of what you what you what you want, which which never appears to you as what it is, right? So you always think you want something else, and it turns out it wasn't that after all. And then even if you get the thing you want, as Helen has says, uh, it, it isn't the right thing. But the desire nevertheless sustains you, right? So it's all about how you kind of, uh, I don't know, in a clever and adult way, understand who you are and how you're comprised somehow or constituted. But I think there might need to be then this this initial moment like when you're embedded in a system as we all are of a kind of crisis perhaps um whether it's at a collective level or an individual level um and so that then one can possibly be courageous and it might take a long time it might take you ages to understand what is going on or you know that you're you're in a state of aporia and this is very socratic you know you're you're literally lost you're on the pathless path you 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 know that something's wrong all of your initial assumptions are no longer working for you like your life is going wrong um and it's only after that i think that you can understand things like um your own lack um, the the point about disagreement as well that the 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 politics understood correctly is uh, the terrible and ever clashing combination of everybody's desire right and it's literally a way of trying to live in the most and uh, not even harmonious but the least worst way 
when confronted with the fact that people have conflicting desires. And the problem with a model of, of, of scarcity politics is that all it does is create new hierarchies. Like just when you think you've got rid of the old hierarchies, you know, gods, aristocracy, politics, whatever, you know, like the feudal model, we end up with a new one, right? In which it's it's the the oppressed must be have more rights than everyone else or whatever, the you know, the triangle of um you know, the new hierarchy. And 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 it's it, they're always based on models of scarcity, right? It's like some people don't have what they should have and, you know, some people suffer and some people don't, even though everybody suffers. Um Or is it is and, it an excess of something else rather than well, just supreme scarcity an excess of ideology yes but i mean the ide- i mean ideology is itself ideological right so in a way <laughs> it's never quite what it says it is so so i mean I'll, well, exactly. you know I, it, it just it's an excess of something that is uh, a sort of an alienating untruth yeah, I mean, it, it followed my thought followed from what you were saying about charity. It's like mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Mark and, and people used to, you know, make charity history, you know, after the make poverty history, it was like make charity history because, you know, so so the idea that we can have a politics that is based on guilt or giving things to other people or victimhood or, you know, the idea that other people are the ones who, you know, need our help and we can, you know, extinguish our guilt by, by doing that. Um, Maybe politics is itself the thing that is being repressed. Mm. Yeah, I yeah. absolutely think that's the case. Because I think that's the case. If, yeah. we have a, if we have an impersonal system with a set of rules and a kind of overdetermining logic, then politics, if we understand politics as people coming together and making decisions, relies on there being some particular people who are able to make decisions or some assembly or group of people who are able to make decisions. But if decisions are largely overdetermined by impersonal structures. You you think about the way a corporation's behavior is overdetermined. The CEO doesn't have any power because the CEO can only act in ways which deliver returns to the shareholders. If the CEO deviates from what delivers returns to the shareholders, the CEO ceases to be CEO. So in a meaningful sense, the CEO can only exist insofar as the CEO behaves in a prescribed way. And the CEO doesn't have any actual ability to make decisions and therefore doesn't actually have political power the CEO just performs a function in a system. And I think in totalitarian societies, and to a large degree in our own existing society, this is how it, it is set up. We have a bunch of overdetermining logics, structural logics, and no particular people or groups or assemblies of people are in a powerful enough position to change or revise those logics. And so there is this, this wanting to be able to do something politically that's meaningful, that matters, but it can't produce decisions because we can't actually change what we're doing, or there will be huge social costs in terms of supply chain disruption, in terms of uh, economic problems. And so we kind of end up in this cultural language game where everything is just air and everything we say doesn't really have any purchase on what anybody actually does. Uh, because that is a kind of facsimile of politics that is compatible with totalitarianism. Yeah. And I think similarly in, in this film, we end up with people doing things that we would not think of as political, but which seem political in this overly determined totalitarian structure. Going around and fixing stuff is not a political act, but it seems political in a society where nobody has any ability to take 
decisions mm. and just the act of going and deciding yourself, I'm going to fix that air conditioning unit in that house is uh, seems like a challenge to the system because it doesn't operate on the system's logic. But of course, it's not a substantive enough challenge to actually unravel the thing. The system deems him a terrorist, but he doesn't really threaten it in any meaningful sense because he's so small and its structure is so big. Jonathan Price's character is the only one to turn down a promotion. The system's logic is very powerful, very strong. Why, why does it even need all of these cops? I think that's a little bit of an Orwellian holdover. Mm. Uh, it, this system is well on its way to being a brave new world. Yeah. It doesn't really need all of that. You know, all that all the solid melts into air, like this is Marx's prediction. And I think, you know, it, like the step one, potentially step zero, <laughs> It's defining terms. Because, like, I think this is absolutely, I think we've lost the thread. I think the thread has been lost so, so badly that any critique has just been folded in because it's not doing the critique at the level it should be doing it. So I think step one is what is politics? And what we are given as politics is a political right-wing ideology and you see, you know, when, when, as I said before, like when you see political art, you're not seeing political art, you're seeing oppositional ideological art that is convenient to the market system, that is alienating. You know, we talked about the definition of what like left and right are. I think that just, we still have reason and logic, right? <laughs> we can still, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult. I think, I mean, in this film, you, you have something like the construction of terrorism as well as, you know, so there is terrorism, but there's also construction of terrorism. And it, it occurred to me, like, Benjamin, when you were talking about the the handyman, I mean, if everybody did jobs for each other and nobody paid tax, I mean, this would actually be very disruptive to the system, if you see what I mean. Like, if, if people just did work for one another in a form of, I don't know, barter and exchange and never actually, you know... Um, <laughs> I don't know, admitted how much they'd earned or everything was cash in hand. Uh, this is potentially a, a problem. And I think like in the last two years with the pandemic, what we've seen is the kind of deliberate or otherwise collapse and deliberate, I don't know, I'm going to say it's deliberate, like destruction of small and medium businesses. So any in, in, in favour of multinational corporations and things that are extremely um, bureaucratic and... Uh, Convenient, you know, and if you remember the Dead Kennedys album, Give Me Convenience or Give Me Death, you know, we, we, we're in that era too, right? The idea that you can order something from Amazon or some fast food and it will be delivered to you by some kind of person of, of uh, indeterminate migration status on a bicycle will bring you your fish and chips or whatever. Um, you know, but it's also the the kind of surveillance and the biopolitical regime and, and all of these things. And everything is becoming streamlined and, you know, whatever social credit system they have in mind, everything will be linked up. Um, you know, even when you apply to go to America, they ask you on your ESTA form for your social media, right? They say, do you have a social media profile? If so, what it is, what is it? You know, of course you can refuse. You don't have to say... Yes, but why are they even asking you? Well, and if everyone refused, then of course the thing wouldn't work. But this is, I think, the, the seductive kind of pseudo-politics of, of anarchism, mm -hmm. where all that we're left with is this, this kind of Id Gandhian idea of non-cooperation. Yeah. If we all just don't cooperate, 
then of course the thing won't work. And that's true. Mm -hmm. But of course, it won't be the case that everyone will refuse to cooperate because the structural incentives are powerful enough that they will secure most people's cooperation most of the time. And the people who don't cooperate are increasingly put in this quixotic position where they're paying enormous social penalties for their non-cooperation to the point where it can drive them insane, where they end up with, with serious mental health problems that make it impossible for them to function. It's interesting because, yeah. you know, we're talking about like the desire question, don't give grounds in terms of your desire. Like, obviously, the answer is not like some return to a conservative kind of like repressive world. But what we do get politically now are just this constant cultural concessions, these very powerful cultural concessions that are like drip fed very gradually in a way that like they, they they're like it wouldn't matter either way whether they let people do this that, and the other but they just, they, they draw it out as if it's some great reform. And it's like, these reforms really cost nothing. And at the end of the day, like, it doesn't matter what form of desire you have or, you know, whether you're this type of person or that type of person, but we have, we have like formulated politics into this sort of like essentialist kind of thing of like, or like this forward march of history, this right side of history. See, the right side of history stuff is just pure cultural like a, a turn from politics, which is not about morality, into into this like cultural whatever. But again, the 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 ideological spin is that the right side of history. This is progress. This is progress. And if you if you don't buy into it, you are a bad, unethical person, which is very difficult for people to to um, step outside of to not buy into that logic. No, like people don't want to be bad people. No. <laughs> yeah. it, it, is there a space between conformity and quixotism is there something in between the two maybe some form of collective politics <laughs> right politics would be the thing that's in between the two but we we, we, we really are struggling to get I, back I, into anything you know, political i think there is also a um a coming to terms with the reality of human subjectivity and i think you can i do, like okay Psychoanalysis does help. And I think there's a sort of an analytic logic that doesn't have to happen just through like paying somebody and going to psychoanalysis in a very expensive way. And I think it is psychoanalysis's contribution to philosophy that can really help. And I know a lot of people, for instance, who read Don McGowan's Capitalism and Desire, who moved out of the, you know, because there's also a quixotism to, to, to the, um, the quietest position, right? You know, they're like, I'm going to live in the words and, uh, you know, and, and uh, something more reasonable, which is the acknowledgement of the existence of other people and, and mm-hmm. a decision to engage with your public, you know. Your um, public? <laughs> everyone has a public. Everyone has a public, you know. Mm. Everybody does. <laughs> And then there's the distinction between like the public and the fandom, right? Because if it's too small, if it hasn't really reached the scale at which it can actually be political, then it has this fandom role where it's kind of this niche community that's in our sats politics. It's enough people that it feels like it's not just an anarchist refusing to cooperate, but it's not actually enough people to politically go anywhere. So it sits in this kind of in-between liminal space where it's a bunch of people doing Quixotism together. And it's like a, like a live action role play yeah, club. I it's mean, like a political LARPing that, that then occurs. Yeah, and this is why, but the thing is though, I think that politics 
isn't what we think politics is. Like politics is literally acknowledging that other people exist and being like, right. Like a lot of people I know, for instance, decided to engage in conversations, not because they think that they have something to say, but because they think that they're actually just like everybody else. And it's this sort of privatization and saving of yourself, you know, the the the, the not getting messy that, that protects you solipsistically as you are somebody who's above the fray or, you know, you don't want to get engaged because it might affect your promotion because you're a special person and you're on this fantasy journey. You know, you are the hero of your hero's journey. So I think that just... Yeah, that, that it doesn't necessarily have to be fantasy LARPing to say have a podcast and have open conversations. <laughs> but um, yeah, and it, it does it does often descend into reactionary oppositional fandoms, which is very depressing, which is, I but just think, it, is yeah. it, is it, And that's the thing to avoid, it's the thing right? To avoid, so it's, it's kind of like, how do you avoid that? But it is, it is, you know, in terms of, you know, like the charity stuff becoming ethical capitalism, the, you know, independent podcasts becoming you know quite reactive not very nice fandoms is yeah but it but anything anything can be marketized anything but can every, fall into that logic every interaction you have with someone right no matter how slight or minimal you know i don't know like somebody who's doing a job that they don't really want to do or maybe they're doing it really well like it's interesting in america like um, there is a sort of serviceness to things like people are like well-informed, they tell you about the product, they're very friendly, you know, ostensibly, um, you know, and it, there's something genuine about that as well. Like it's not untrue, right, that this person is also being sociable and you're being sociable with them and friendly, even if the uh, relation is one purely ultimately in a bare sense of exchange, right? And I don't know, you meet people at a party, you have a, a disagreement with someone at a party. And I mean, even to, even for people to go to a party is like, amazing most people are still in their houses right but but let's say you're sort of in the world and you're encountering all these people like there is a way in which precisely like the other has to be contended with right in all of their everyone does like however whoever you meet it's not just oh these people because they're a bit more like me and they share some of my interests mm-hmm. or they have a similar education it's like literally everyone you meet is meaningful or potentially like every every interaction you have is is meaningful for everyone and and if you're open in a way to that reality, there is something kind of amazing about like that. That is what reality is, right? That is the the other in its little otherness, and you know, it's, and it's kind of astonishing, really, like how how different and interesting people are. And I don't know, but the, and that that in a way you could say, well, this isn't this some sort of banal humanism or some kind of you know what what is remotely uh, relevant or important about that? But I think I think it if you somehow internalize the outside <laughs> all the time you know it's the only way we're ever going to have any agreement or do anything together right with whoever um i guess in a metaphorical sense it's the importance of going outside well you know, not just yeah. physically going outside <laughs> but going outside whatever it is that becomes your sense of of the in-group mm. because the only way we can expand out to the point where we have enough collective energy is to continually go outside the little groups that we make. Yeah, exactly. And to keep expanding. And it may be that you need both, of course, like the little platoon idea everyone keeps going on about these days. But also I think going through the the negative as well, like, you know, I mean, this is a Jordan Peterson point, but it's, it's quite a good one, which is that 
Like, it's not that you're not Hitler. Like, you're Hitler, right? You're, you're the Nazis. Like, everybody has to confront this possibility in themselves, that they themselves are evil. And, you know, however we epitomize metaphysical evil, you know, that, that you are not exempt from that just because you say you are, right? And in fact, the only way we avoid true evil is by, if you like, asking yourself that question of what evil is and how, what's your relation to it, whether you call it evil or whatever. But, you know, let's say yeah. um, these, these aggressive and terrible and destructive and murderous impulses that belong to humanity, right? That are, that are literally repressed in order that civilization must, that civilization can proceed, you know, and you can't exempt yourself from them. So I think that question, asking yourself that question is the only way you avoid that happening again. Yeah. And maybe this is the distinction. In a fandom, you're recruiting people to defend your sense of separation from society. And in politics, you are purposefully reaching out to people who challenge your sense of what matters and trying in some way to assimilate the things that they care about and to appreciate their values in a way which synthesizes them with your own. I, I totally agree. And it's it, the thing that happened, and that's precisely the a-religious, you know, we talk about atheism being extremely religious. It's the a-religious position, but it will often be it's the, the non-ideological position, but um, under the current order of things where the aesthetic of um, challenge, of being independent, of being, you know, um, a rebel is within the, the corporate system itself, that that will be, uh, that critique will be turned against you precisely for being open, which is a crazy thought, but has happened to me recently. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, we've hit the hour mark, so we're going to wrap it up for today. And we'd love it if you'd come and join us on the B side on Patreon. But either way, have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.